Crime Obscene is a monthly true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. January 2006, Jennifer Cassie left her boyfriend's house in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The two had been vacationing in the Virgin Islands and Jennifer stayed a night there, as she often did before driving to work. After working a full day, Jennifer left work at 6pm before driving back to her condo in Mosaic Millennia. She spoke to her parents and brother Logan, telling them about the vacation and catching up. Around 10pm, Jennifer calls her boyfriend, Rob, but as she was tired from the vacation, was in bed and the conversation was brief, but before getting off the phone they told each other they missed each other and were excited for the next breakaway they would take. Rob was running late for work the next morning and seeing no call or text from Jennifer, which he thought was odd, decided to call her instead, but only got her voicemail. Upon finishing work himself later on, Rob would call her once more but this went straight to voicemail, and when he learnt, Jennifer did not arrive for work that morning either, but Rob and Jennifer's parents were notified of this, and they began to drive the two hours from their home in Tampa, Florida, to Jennifer's condo. Upon arriving and gaining access by the management, whom the Kessies had called beforehand, there appeared to be nothing amiss in the condo. The bed looked slept in, items of clothing were spread out on the bed, a towel wet from a shower and makeup were out. All the indicators that Jennifer had at least gotten ready for work that morning. The only things that were missing were her purse, keys, phone and iPod, and of course Jennifer herself. Police were notified soon. The Orange County Sheriffs and the Orlando Police Department deputies arrived, and soon they deemed it a possible mental breakdown or a tiff with her boyfriend that caused her to walk away. And that was it. They left. And that was how... The long and arduous journey for the Cassie family and their 14 year search for their missing daughter began. A search which was plagued by a lack of physical evidence, an uncertain time of disappearance and even surveillance footage of the luckiest person of interest in the world. In today's episode we explore the mysterious disappearance of Jennifer Cassie, a much loved young woman who was seemingly plucked off the face of the earth and has not been seen or heard of since. Hello, welcome to Crime Obscene. I'm your host, Aaron. Before we start, I would like to tell you a little bit about the show. Crime Obscene is a monthly true crime podcast that explores unsolved murders, missing persons cases and beyond. This podcast is run by me and me alone, so your listenership and feedback is greatly appreciated. 
so why not give me a follow on your favourite podcatcher and a like and review. This greatly helps out the pod. If you have any feedback, a case suggestion, or just want to drop me a line, you can do so by emailing me at crimeobscenepod at outlook.com. Tweet me at crimeobscenepod or on Instagram by the same name. There is also a private Facebook group set up where you can discuss your thoughts on episodes, recommend other pods, or just be part of a community who want to make a difference. That's Crime Obscene Investigators. Now, let's begin. Chapter 1. Crime Timeline Jennifer Joyce Kessie was born on the 20th of May 1981 to parents Joyce and Drew Kessie. They would also have a son, Logan. Jennifer, or Jen, to her loved ones, was born in New Jersey before her family moved to Odessa, Florida. Jen was described as a bubbly and go-lucky child with a loving nature and wit. Jen attended and graduated Vivian Gaither High School, Tampa, Florida, before going on to the University of Central Florida in 1999, where she then graduated in 2003 with a degree in finance. In a few short years, Jen, now 24, became a finance manager at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Okoe, and with the new job, Jen was able to buy her own condominium at Mosaic Millennia somewhere between the end of November 2005 to January 2006. The very fact that at just 24, Jen had achieved all this in such a short space of time was, and still is, very impressive which was an indication of her ambition and determination to get where she wanted to be in life. These condos were part of a wide-scale development in the area, and a lot of the condos were still in the process of being renovated and remodeled, with 447 units on the complex, just some 250 were occupied, and still being extensively worked on. With so much work being carried out, that meant the workforce were frequently out and about in the area, and even on some occasions in her own unit. Jen was a safe person. In fact, one of the reasons she bought the condo was because it was a gated community with a guard. This safety consciousness was instilled by her parents, as they were held up at gunpoint when living in New Jersey. This incident, as traumatic as it sounds, would go on to make the Kessie parents a little more wary of the dangers of the world and teach their kids when old enough to understand people danger. This meant Jen always carried a whistle and a mace and if she found herself in a situation where she did not feel comfortable, she would call someone on the phone. These calls were a staple for her if she was on a night out or even just grocery shopping. Jen had complained in the past that the workers had made her uncomfortable, quoting and saying they would stop and stare in a leering way. One such incident occurred where she had to allow entry to them to do some work, so she did what was typical and called her parents while in the doorway of her home, ensuring she was able to get away if things escalated and her parents were aware of the situation. This safety awareness would make the events of Tuesday, 24th of January 2006, even more puzzling. Before we cover the Tuesday, we must rewind the clock a few days previous and go through the hours and minutes before Jen's disappearance. Between January 14th to 18th, a witness named Erica claims during meetings in apartment office, Jen was agitated and distracted, 
and she said it was like Jen was, quote, trying to duck into the office to avoid someone, end quote. On January 18th, Jen would drive to her boyfriend's, Rob Allen's apartment, where they leave together and fly out to the Virgin Islands a day later, January 19th. Jen's brother Logan and a few friends stay at her condo starting from the 20th of January. On Sunday the 22nd, the couple would leave St. Croix and fly back and make the drive to Fort Lauderdale to Rob's place where Jen stayed. This was not uncommon either as she often stayed there. Monday 23rd of January, Jen leaves Alan's place at 6am and drives straight to her place of work in Okoe. She works a full day and finishes at about 6pm. All this is accounted for because Jen spoke to her parents that evening, catching up, talking about her trip. Joyce, Jen's mother, was quoted in saying, quote, she was really happy, she was on a cloud, end quote. She then spoke to her brother Logan, whom she was close to. One of Logan's friends had left his cell phone in the condo and Jen said she would ship it to him. Her work area had access to shipping companies such as FedEx closer to 10pm. Jen gets her boyfriend on the phone. They have chit-chat and both express their wish to go on a trip again, and they say they miss each other before Jen says she is tired from the long day and going straight from vacationing to work, she decides to go to sleep. They wish each other good night and the end of call. Tuesday, 24th of January. Rob Allen wakes up. He sees he's running a small bit late and rushes out the door. Noticing no new messages or calls from Jen, which was odd as Jen would often call or text him in the morning, he decides to call her as he drives to work, but the call goes to voicemail. He casts little attention as Jen had a meeting that morning at 11am and he assumed she was prepping for that. Alan makes it to work and goes about his workday. Alan calls Jen a second time, a little bit later, but again it goes straight to voicemail. Meanwhile at Jen's work, co-workers and management alike notice she is not there. This was odd because Jen was described as dependable and very responsible and would never miss a day without calling first. More concerned than angry, she has not arrived for work. Shortly after 11am, her employer attempted to reach her on her cell and home phone and in failing that, decided to call her parents. A mile away from Jen's condo at 12pm, Jen's black Chevy Malibu is recorded on surveillance, being parked at Huntington on the Green, another complex of condos. The car will remain in this location unnoticed and undisturbed for two days before any connection will be made to Jen. Shortly after 1pm, Jen's parents, Drew and Joyce and brother Logan, drive two hours from their home in Tampa and arrive at the complex around 3pm. Before getting there, Joyce had called the condo management to see if they could gain access to her condo. They noted the door had been locked and nothing appeared out of the ordinary, but the Cassies do enter the condo and check to be safe. They noticed the usual humdrum about typical of Jen's morning activity, makeup out on the counter, hair dryer out as well, what Jen wore to bed piled on the floor in the bathroom. There was even a wet towel, water droplets still visible in the shower behind the bottles. Luggage from the vacation was still in the hall, but her purse, phone, keys and iPod, things she never left the house without, were still there. Her bed was still unmade, and like you'd imagine a young woman would do before going to work, an outfit spread out on the bed, but no Jen. With no trace or clear picture of where Jennifer might be, the Kessies decide to call the police. They are met by both Orlando Police Department and Orange County Sheriff deputies though this would appear in formality 
as unfortunately they only ask preliminary questions about Jen's age and come to the very wrong conclusion that she had a mental episode and left or was blowing off steam after a row with her boyfriend. It would be worth reminding you, the listener, that Jen lived at her condo alone, so why would she leave her own home after a row with a boyfriend to blow off steam when he didn't live with her? This was a perplexing stance for law enforcement to take right off the bat. Disappointed with the poor response from the police, Jen's family would begin immediately with their own missing persons campaign and would be beating the streets by late afternoon, handing out flyers to the public. The detectives do however list Jennifer as a missing person and put out a bolo or be on the lookout for her car, this being insisted on by Joyce Kessie. The days following are alive with activity. The family is still doing their utmost best to raise awareness on their missing daughter and on Thursday 26th of January the first break of the case gets called in. A woman at Huntington the Green noticed Jen's four-door blocked Chevy Malibu after seeing it shown on the news and immediately calls the police. The car is found parked in the middle of a Jeep Cherokee and Dodge pickup. Descriptions of the location where the car is found is not good as the area is a high crime area with a drug problem. The police determined the car had not been driven much in the subsequent days with a half tank full of gas. This police figured was in line with a drive from Fort Lauderdale to Okoe and back to her home in Mosaic. The car was locked and there were some items in the car that were not stolen like an expensive DVD player she kept in the box seat. The car would be processed by the police. Progressing from the discovery of Jen's car, police begin a door-to-door -door search questioning the public if they'd seen or heard anything but would have to come back to try and get people who had not been there during the day hours. A bloodhound is called to do tracking from Jen's car, found at Huntington on the green, but this would only lead investigators a mile down the road back to Jen's condo complex, but bypassing the complex own entrance to a stretch of fence that divided the sidewalk to the grounds. The bloodhound did retrieve a scent and followed inside the fence and to Jen's condo, there was also a search in some woods that lay behind the Mosaic complex. The search continues on Thursday, February 2nd. Police perform a grid search incorporating foot and horseback behind the Fry Institute of Technology, not far from Jen's condo on Conroy Road. This would yield no results. It would be two days later, on Saturday the 4th of February, OPD released two photos that show a person walk past the gated area at the Huntington on the green. They refrained from releasing full footage and it would be later revealed this is footage of the day at 12pm when Jennifer's car is being parked at the location where it is eventually found. Chapter 2 The Luckiest Person of Interest Ever Huntington on the green is approximately 1.1 miles away from Jen's condo and when her car was recovered there it immediately set everyone on the edge when it was discovered. This area was not somewhere Jen would have frequented, as law enforcement stated this area was not the safest, stating quote, What was concerning about this area was that it is a complex where stolen cars were found and recovered. End quote, Sergeant Roger Brennan. The discovery did alleviate some fears, as Hope cautiously raised its head. Now that they had found their car, surely Jen could not be far off. Being an unprecedented move for authorities at the time, but needed to happen to investigate everyone close to Jen, Rob Allen was asked to meet them at the car. But when they opened up the car and seen she was not there, 
and coupled with the fact Rob was 200 miles away in Fort Lauderdale, Rob could be eliminated from the investigation. Alan still came and did what they asked of him and cooperated fully in the investigation. He wanted Jen found just as much as everyone else. Unfortunately, Jen was no closer to being found. Police initially felt nothing was out of ordinary at the scene where her vehicle was located. But just recently, up to two weeks to this podcast being aired, new evidence has been revealed to show this might not have been the case, which we will delve into later in this episode. Huntington on the Green had a pool area where surveillance was filmed. Jen's car is picked up by one camera, being driven down the complex and being parked. The person straightens the car up, sits in the interior for 30 seconds before exiting and making their way east in the direction of Mosaic Millennia. In the second footage procured by police and released eventually depicts a noticeably clear view of the gated pool's entrance. The rail gate is surrounded on the outside by mid-high hedges on either side of the gate and looks out on the parking area. The most frustrating and odds-defying aspect of the footage and overall case is the camera that recorded only did so in 2-3 seconds of snaps, in essence working like a timer of a camera. The footage picks up the person of interest, but on every beat, perfectly timed with the 3 second window of snaps, the suspect's face is completely blocked out by the posts of the gate. However, the back of the suspect, back of their head and one leg can be viewed in the second photo. From visual observation, it would appear the suspect may be wearing a very bright t-shirt and darker shaded trousers, but law enforcement had come out and said that they had stood in front of the camera with dark clothes on and the picture colours would still come out as lighter than in reality, so it is impossible to determine exactly the colours of the clothes. The suspect does have some unusual footwear with it appearing to have a thick heel and pointed tip, some liken it to be a brogue type shoe, but again, the actual shoe cannot be definitively identified. The suspect's partial head area has caused the most theories, with some saying it resembled a flat cap turned backwards, to others saying it might be the suspect's hair itself tied up in a tight bun. This has added questions to even the suspect's gender. Whilst men do have long hair, it cannot be definitively said if the suspect is male or female, which is how little can be ascertained from the stills. The FBI had been called in to later try and identify the person's size and gender, but all they could say was the person stood to between 5 foot 3 inches to about 5 foot 5 inches, with unusually large feet for a person with that size. They also thought the clothes could be that of a painter or labour worker, but alas, even with that information and FBI and also processing the images, nothing more could be revealed through testing. Of course, it was well known that the condos were being renovated as a possible identity of the person came forward, that they were labourer or construction worker from Mosaic Millennia. In releasing the footage, law enforcement were hopeful that someone could identify the gait, hairstyle, or anything else, no matter how small, that could lead to their identification. But to this day, no one so far has come forward with that information. The person of interest seems to walk casually, almost nonchalant, like this was a regular day. And this attitude might show a lack of knowledge of surveillance cameras in the area, and it was by a freak occurrence this person's face had not been caught making him quote-unquote luckiest person of interest ever, as coined by one journalist. Chapter 3 5110 Days It has been 14 years since Jennifer Kessie's disappearance. 5110 days 
since the police started their investigation and were no closer to finding her. Therefore, in 2016, the Cassie family decided to sue the Orlando Police Department for more than 6,000 files pertaining to Jennifer's case. This would eventually be settled out of court on May 6th, with the Orlando Police Department declining comment specifically on the settlement, but the settlement did read, quote, The city of Orlando and the Orlando Police Department recognises the genuine desire of the Cassie family to obtain the investigative materials and wish to allow them to access they seek in this matter. All parties also recognise the desire to forego prolonged litigation and resolve the disputes between them relating to the litigation and all claims that have or could have been asserted by the parties." End quote. One of the conditions of the settlement was the OPD would not participate further in the investigation and the Kessies along with their team would be the lead investigators on the case. Working alongside them was a private investigator, Michael Toretta, who would sift through the mountain of documents, audio and visual recordings in the event law enforcement had missed something. He and the Cassie family started with the people who last saw her, witnesses who provided stories of their own encounters with Jen leading up to her disappearance, but more stories of their own personal encounters with the workforce of the Mosaic condos led them down avenues the police could not travel. Unfortunately, just like with the police, when trying to track down a majority of workers, it was learned a lot of them would have fled. Though suspicious as it may seem at first glance, it was further discovered a lot of these workers were illegally residing in the country. Further dead ends would persist, with work ledgers obtained being incomplete with names missing. However, as the investigations did continue, new leads developed. Toretta learned that 10 months after Jen's disappearance, a rolled up carpet was observed by a witness being dumped into a lake not far from Jen's home. And most intriguing of all, work being carried out in the condo across from Jen's was being recarpeted. There was a lot of evidence to show that a significant amount of workers lived in vacant condos while they worked there, but they did not officiate a lease in this regard, so specific people, once again, could not be identified. The tip of the lake dumping prompted an investigation, but after a search with divers, no carpet or anything of evidentiary value was found. Other things discovered over Toretta's investigation found more disturbing encounters residents had. A witness reportedly found a voyeur on her patio, pleasuring himself, and when she confronted this man, he fled the scene in a white van. But upon reporting this to police, they would never be able to find the perpetrator or the vehicle he fled in. This certainly did paint a very different picture of the supposedly safe, gated community Jen had lived, and showed very inappropriate actions of certain workers, and even the company themselves, who do not keep complete records, and hired legal workers whom were not vetted efficiently prior to commencing work there, in on itself very disturbing. A tip was discovered that was phoned in one week after Jen's disappearance and had referenced a man named Chino had something to do with her disappearance. Chino had been working in the condo and even did some work on Jen's condo a week before her disappearance. Chino had already served time for sexual battery involving a minor and had already been investigated and after passing a polygraph was not investigated further. He has cooperated with police and has even cooperated with the Cassie's own investigation. Michael Toretta believes there was at least 10 people living in the condo across from Jen's apartment and it could be possible one or even a few people from there could have abducted her. 
On November 13, 2020, new pictures were released by the Cassie family and her team. The images show a picture of Jen's four-door block Chevy Malibu from the perspective of the hood. There, it is believed to show signs of disturbance in the dust atop the bonnet, with what appears to be hand marks being dragged over the surface. Drew Cassie told Fox News, it looked like someone was thrown down on top of the hood, arms spread out, and then dragged back, almost like off the hood, to the point where you can see fingers scribbling down the hood. End quote. It has been 5,110 days since Mother Joyce and Father Drew Cassie talked to their daughter during one of her safe calls. It has been 122,640 hours since Rob Allen had last seen his girlfriend, and 7,358,400 minutes since an unidentified person parked Jen's four-door black Chevy Malibu at a spot one mile away from her condo and has never been identified. As the clock ticks by, and seconds turns to hours and days, to even years, Jennifer Cassie's family will not stop looking for her, because no one deserves to vanish without a trace. And in the Cassie family's case, they have made sure every day of the 5,110 days that Jen has been gone, her story was told, and they tried to reach that one person who could come forward and end their nightmare once and for all. The following clip is an interview Drew Cassie done for news. Up there that you weren't saying. What were you trying to say up there? We need the cooperation of the Orlando. Honestly, I don't even know if it's the Orlando Police Department. We need cooperation of City Hall and the lawyers that are advising Orlando Police Department that it is time to cooperate with the Kessie family and their investigative and lawyers team. It's time for a lot of reasons. If we stand right here, we thank. We thank you for this. We actually do. But this is a blaring and glaring point that this case is cold. After 12 years, who puts a bus out here? Who increases a, a, a reward? Who puts a, I'm sorry, who puts a uh, detective on full time for the third time this never really happened? I mean, all these things that are happening, we understand the system. We understand what they have to do. However, we have done things for not only the department, not only for this community, for this state and for this country, we change the way people are found when they go missing. And I don't think that we're sitting on the sidelines for 12 years saying, okay, okay, we're twiddling our thumbs, we can't do anything. Are you kidding me? We have had our lives threatened. We have been attempted extortion several times. We have been tempted luring to, to international companies. We have been asked to lie. I have been on death row mic'd up to try and get information. There is nothing that we have not tried to do to help the situation. I encourage you to go to the authorities, to go to police, and have them write down every single piece of anything that they did for Jennifer for 12 years. You'll be amazed. It's incredible what they have done. It's incredible. Proof again. It's a cold case. We don't have anything. We can stand at Jennifer's front door to this day and they cannot tell us one inch up, down, left, or right. It's okay, Orlando. It's okay. We understand how hard it is. We understand people make mistakes. I've made mistakes. We're all human. But it's time to get every resource available 
and we feel that we have the right to, and honestly, by law, we do have the right. Chapter 4, Theories and Conclusions Before I begin this section, I just wanted to give an Instagram follower a big shout out. I won't name their name, but I will say thank you for suggesting Jan's case and being a valuable source of answering any of my questions, giving me your viewpoints, and just generally helping me sort through this misinformation and the rumours surrounding this case. Unfortunately, there has been no easy route for the Kessie family to take. From day one, Drew and Joyce have faced setback after setback, from false leads pertaining to a woman claiming her husband was responsible for Jennifer's disappearance, only for it to turn out she was trying to get him arrested for narcotics and had literally nothing to do with the case, to the very harsh reality that this case was handled inefficiently by police from the very beginning. The Cassies have poured an insane amount of their own money into finding their daughter, to the point of when they sued the OPD for the files, it cost them nearly 20 grand. I cannot imagine the financial, emotional or physical pain this has caused them, and I'm completely blown away by the resilience in how they have endured all these years, remembering the light of Jennifer, her wit and her charm. So where do all these facts and roads we have travelled in this episode leave us? Really, with very little to no physical trace of Jennifer, it is very hard to unpack this case into any one conclusion, but nevertheless, the two biggest theories is as follows. Jennifer was abducted and forced into human trafficking. In the research for this case, I found that Florida was the third highest in missing persons in the United States, according to a news report by WALB News done in 2019. Florida had 1,252 people missing, an average of 6.0 per 100,000 people. California being the highest with 2,133 at 5.4 per 100,000, and Texas in second with 1,246. Of these, average ages were 34, with 60% male and 40% female demographic. While digging further, to determine an average how many would be considered trafficked in this area, I found an article with a citation of anywhere up to 50,000 people were trafficked in the United States each year, but this figure was amended to 18,000 to 20,000 in 2003, trafficking in persons report. However, it was also stated in this article, I discovered that estimations were difficult to calculate as the covert nature of the operation, which of course I understand. How do all these figures and stats help in Jen's case? Well, it definitely does give cause for concern when we consider the astronomically high presumed figure of how many actually go missing because of human trafficking, and in the way and manner to which she was taken, without a shred or sign of a struggle, this would showcase either she was overpowered by a brute force or a weapon of some kind. If we were to think solely on the lone abductor scenario and going by average height of the POI who parked the car, the suspect approximately 5 foot 3 to 5 foot 5, Jen was 5 foot 8. Coupled with her mace and whistle, I think we can safely assume she was taken from behind, possibly while locking her door or with her back turned as she opened her car door. But how likely could she have been overpowered by a person smaller than her? I can only attest from my own limited experience working in factories where manual handling is a fairly common thing and I've seen men much smaller than me lift two times their body weight 
and I'm five foot eleven. I would think all someone would need is a good leverage, possibly subduing Jen by some method, and then when unconscious, lifting the body, propping her up on the hood to gain some leverage, and then slumping her across their shoulders. This was possibly a method, but one I would feel would be slow and sluggish, leaving the perpetrator a lot of time which they could not afford to waste with it being presumed early morning. They could be caught or seen doing something like this. That is also another confounding aspect to this case, the fact that there was very few witnesses or people who said they even heard anything. How? There had to have been a disturbance, but maybe at the time the people just did not know what they had heard in the context of it being anything foul. The second theory is quite similar to the first one, but with a group of people involved. Remember, Mike Toretta did say he believed the group of individuals were responsible for the abduction. He accounted to for at least 10 workers living in the condo across from Jens, coupled with all the accounts of uncomfortable feelings of other tenants regarding to the behaviour and conducts of working in the Mosaic millennia, it would be very reasonable to shine the light of suspicion on the workforce, who were very much a concern for those living in the condominium complex. Outside of those two theories that have been put forth, there is always the idea that Jennifer Kessie was the target of a very horrible case of an opportunistic predator. The name Israel Keyes has been tossed around in regards to a lot of people and cases that have been missing and presumed dead, and he would be a very real concern considering he had targeted victims hundreds of miles from where he lived. He travelled extensively, buried kill kits years in advance of carrying out his crimes, but he did have some methods. He would only target houses with a garage entrance, and Jennifer's condo was on the second floor, which doesn't really fit his Keys MO. That really only leaves us with one conclusion, that does not answer any more questions than we had at the beginning. But ultimately, this is why the True Crime Podcast and community exist, and just to listen to a solved case that had the suspect caught and tried within a year. Some cases last for decades, and some get solved decades later. In our current decade, we have seen some 40-year-old cases solved through DNA, through methods never even dreamt of before, which is a fantastic thing, but I'm still a firm believer in the power of the Vox Populi. If this case has impacted you, and you know someone in Florida, share it with them. Even if they heard this case a hundred times, missing persons and murder cases have no shelf life. They only have loved ones who beg and scream for answers. Do not let these voices get lost in the vacuum. Please share this case. Donate to the family GoFundMe. They have a goal for $200,000. They're currently at somewhere between $70,000. This poor family has sunk all their life savings into finding their daughter. They're now at the point where they have resorted to setting up a GoFundMe and I'm sure they'd greatly appreciate any donation. And of course, share Jen's picture. Talk about this case, the surveillance footage. Don't let the luckiest person of interest in the world get away with this any longer because as we know, even luck runs out. Jennifer Joyce Kessie has been missing since the 24th of January 2006. She was 24 years of age at the time of her disappearance. Jen, as she is known to loved ones and friends, was 5 foot 8 inches, 125 pounds. She possibly has a tree stone diamond necklace on her person. She was a Caucasian female with blonde hair and green eyes. 
She wore contact lenses and her eyebrows are coloured dark. She had skin tags on the outside of her left hand, a birthmark on the middle finger of her left hand, a non-raised faded strawberry birthmark on her ribs, a cleft in her chin, a quarter-sized tattoo of a shamrock on the left side of her buttock, and surgical scars on the left inside of her elbow. Depending on her clothing, her eyes may have appeared blue. If you have any information, no matter how small you may think it is, please contact the Kessie family or their private detective, Michael Toretta. I want to find my daughter for the good or bad. That's all, I'm, that's all I'm hoping for. The who's, the why's, the what's, you know, that's for those people to take care of. Right now, after 12 years, our family simply wants to know what happened to Jennifer. Is she with us or isn't she with us for sure? We'll go away. I promise you, we'll go away. We simply want our And we think it's possible.